0: How can we foster workplace climates where teams collaborate deeply, take risks, and learn together? NLI CEO and co-founder Dr. David Rock joins the world's leading scholar on psychological safety, Dr. Amy Edmondson, to examine how organizations can create conditions for psychological safety where it's needed most. I'm Shelby Wilburn, and you're listening to Your Brain at Work from the Neuroleadership Institute. We continue to draw episodes from our weekly Friday webinar series. This week, our show is a conversation between Dr. Amy Edmondson, Nevada's Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School, and Dr. David Rock, co-founder and CEO of the Neuroleadership Institute. Enjoy.
1: Amy, I'm so delighted to get some time with you, and um, we've got some some great conversations to have, but I, I hear you're in Europe somewhere. Where are you calling in from today? I'm in Stockholm. I'm sitting in a little borrowed office at
2: the Stockholm School of Economics, where I'm a visiting professor for a couple of weeks. Lovely,
1: lovely. That's uh, That sounds really delightful, especially at this time of year. Maybe don't come yeah. back in a month or two. It's pitch black. It's pitch black. Already. There. Of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, to, I mean, let's start off. For those of you who don't know you, um, tell us a little bit about your background before we get into psych safety. And, and I've always been fascinated by your connection to Buckminster Fuller as well, and how he kind of influenced you. Tell us you know, a little bit about your background. Sure. I,
2: so I studied engineering in college, you know, and, and frankly, I think I studied engineering primarily for the wrong reason to, to the right reason is that I did, did like to, and still want to make a difference. And, and, and engineering is all about making that difference. But the wrong reason is I think I wanted to prove I was as smart as my brother, which I am not. So, so that didn't, um, you That's know, funny. Ultimately, ultimately, my heart wasn't in it, if you know what I mean. But I, I studied engineering. In a sense, I studied into the real puzzles, the real problems, which is people and, and teams and organizations. But coming right out of college, um, I was really lucky. I sort of stumbled into a job with a great inventor, thinker, visionary. Buckminster Fuller um, was... Um, was best known, I suppose, for having invented the geodesic dome, which uh, ultimately makes him the designer whose structures cover more land than anyone in history. Uh, But he was also an author of a dozen books with such um, fanciful titles as Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth uh, and, and Critical Path and so forth. And he was really an early futurist and an early environmentalist. and right. and he um he, he used to say things like, um, sort of relying on fossil fuels for our energy source is is like using up your Earth's savings account mm-hmm. when she has this beautiful income account, right? and and that's sun and wind and all the renewable right. sources that were right there. Um, and he said, you know, it's kind of the equivalent of burning down the house to stay warm on a cold winter's night, you know, which, which you wouldn't do, but he had a great ability to kind of put things in geologic time, just to, to step back and say, this is what we're, we're doing. And so his whole sort of raison d'etre, if you will, was to, was to wake people up to the idea that they could use their brains. So it comes right back to, to the brain. They could use their brains to solve problems, you know, problems that were primarily around figuring out how do we better care for more human lives for more years into the future, right? Right. He said, guess what? We're on a finite planet. That's a given. Called it Spaceship Earth. We're on Spaceship Earth certainly makes no sense to invest so much of our energy in trying to sink the other side of the ship. That doesn't work. Right. But, but we can, we can solve problems. We can come up with sort of better solutions uh, to support our, our needs here on our, on our little planet. Right. And and so, so that was sort of, I have to say it was a joy. It was a joy to work with him. He was, he was in his eighties and I was in my twenties. Um, and we had a nice old team of people in the office and he just was um, he was a very creative appreciative generous um and and um sort of joyful person so it was it was it was a lot of fun and um ultimately as I said he opened my eyes to the real challenge of people working together to get things done and and that became what I was interested in I worked for a while after that in a in a consulting capacity and an organizational uh, Firm, and then went to graduate school, and basically stayed in academia after that.
1: Yeah, let's get into your research in a minute. But just uh, you know, Buckminster Fuller, or or, or Bucky, to those who know him, um, was always been one of my intellectual heroes. And there's actually videos of him talking uh, on the internet. You can find kind of him, and he's they're a little dated in a way because he sort of, but you can see his huge big brain and just the way (laughs) about the whole system. It was fascinating. You know, I never knew that about you. We've been hanging out a lot. I never knew that you'd, you'd had. Uh, an engineering background, it just makes so much sense now, the way you see the world, and and then going into Bucky, you you think in terms of systems, um, and you think about the human systems um, in a a similar way to I do. I didn't study engineering, but I'm I'm always thinking about the system, um, not just the individual, and I think uh, maybe where we intersect, but how lucky for you to get to spend some time with such an an awesome brain. Tell me the, the, the sort of... You know, you you really coined the term psychological safety. It's such a at such a powerful term because it takes a, you know, an existing concept of safety and kind of re, you know, shifts it <laughs> shifts it to another domain. So it's like, um, uh, it's it, it really sticks in the brain, uh, you know, very powerfully. It's I, I think it's an idea whose time has come now. But where did that come from? Where did the yeah. sort of how did you get interested in it? Maybe you know what was the the research background? So let me
2: correct one thing because I did not coin the term but you're absolutely you. right i got to the term because of an interest in in physical safety and uh, so i was i guess when i started graduate school my primary interest was and, and this was this was developed during my sort of consulting years was how do we help people and organizations but especially organizations to learn in a world that keeps changing right and and, right. and there were a number of of things that um Sort of stumbled into that that seemed to make it hard for people at work and organizations to do this, and so in my early days as a PhD student at in, in Harvard's sort of at the time relatively new program in organizational behavior, I had I was invited to study medical errors. Now I wasn't particularly interested in medicine, but I was interested in learning and learning from mistakes. As everyone knows, is sort of a key source of learning so i figured all right i'll get in there i'll see what i can learn about you know how do organizations in this case organizations with very high stakes you know human life how do they learn from their mistakes in the process i stumbled into something that was blindingly obvious but just hadn't really been talked about and what i stumbled into was that and i was i was doing research in, you know, qualitative and quantitative survey data and qualitative interview and observational data and in in some major tertiary care hospitals. Right. And um, what I found was that this whole business of learning from error, as, you, as we know, was quite fraught. But then the number one thing that I had not anticipated, but became quite starkly true, was that there were real palpable differences across teams and how willing they were to talk about error. It's like oh, of course you know and 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 now I'm going to say something incredibly obvious which is if you can't talk about them, you can't learn from them you know, especially mm-hmm. at the collective level. So this so I started talking about this. so I was interested in you know making patients safe. But I started talking about it as interpersonal climate, which by the way, it still is. Yep. And you know, and I thought, well, interpersonal climate can be kind of open and candid or it can be kind of closed and scary. And when I finally wrote up the results not of this study, but of a subsequent study in a manufacturing setting for, you know, an academic journal, it was the reviewers that pushed back, and said, and I still don't know they who they were because it's blind blind review, anonymous review. They pushed back, um, and and one of them at least said, "What you're talking about is psychological safety." I'm like, okay, that sounds fine. Um, whatever the reviewer says, frankly, you sort of say, you know, yes. Um, but but then the reviewer pointed me to a book by Warren Bennis and Ed Shine uh, in from the late '60s. A lovely book on on change, on organizational change. And in that book, I mean, it's more or less, you know, it wasn't a, the whole point of the book, but it was, it was a topic in the book was that people they wrote need to feel psychologically safe. If they're going to be able to do the work you want them to do to, to change, right. That that's sort of a, you know, almost a precondition. So I, I said, um, I I realized, I mean, I thought that the reviewer had had a point Um, and my unique contribution in that study. And subsequently was that this thing, this psychological safety thing is an emergent property of a group. And again, in an organization, I don't care whether it's Google or, you know, uh, the mass general hospital, you will see differences across groups Mm. and it's sort of it's like a group level phenomenon that's where it lives you know there's some differences across organizations and there's some differences across individuals but it is an emergent property of of a group of people who sort of work together
1: over time that's interesting so so define it for us give us the sort of most crisp definition you have of psychological safety for the, for the newbie maybe
2: yeah, so I'll define it as a a belief. Um, And when I say belief, it can be sort of an explicit, I can talk to you about this or just taken for granted implicit belief, but a belief that you can take interpersonal risks, you know, particularly related to speaking up, speaking up with questions, dissenting views, you know, mistakes. Um, It's a sense of felt permission for candor. It's hmm. not comfort, right? It's not ease. Uh, it's not oh, it's going to be just totally you know agreeable around here. There won't be conflict. It'll be comfortable. No, it's in fact. I'm now going. I'm not giving you a quick answer now, but it's it's in fact a um, a, a state of knowing it's okay to be uncomfortable because it's necessary for us to do a good job.
1: Right, no, that's really interesting, and we'll, we'll get to the neuroscience in a minute. I know we want to dig into that, but um, it's so interesting hearing your your broader backstory and definition. And I'm I'm thinking about like the um uh, you know the emergent phenomena. It's um you know the research we've done on this is that uh, the most successful teams actually people feel a little uncomfortable. Um, oh. They're not just super comfortable all the time. They're actually challenging each other. Uh, they are speaking up. Um, and they have some diversity. They have really different perspectives. But if you have that diversity, but you don't have this speaking up ability, um, you you don't get the benefits. And I think we're all kind of seeing the same kinds of things using different language. And yes, to some degree, psychological safety is like you know really good quality inclusion. Um, exactly feels kind of they can speak up. It's it's there's some some commonalities. But we also noticed as we dug into the deeper science of this that inclusion was sort of like a. a, a sort of table stakes entry point, And then psych safety had these particular skills on top of it to really uh, create the conditions. And we'll, we'll dig more into that. Um, in, in yeah. a minute. I have to tell you a quick story about learning just as an aside, but it was fascinating. You mentioned Warren Bennis who passed away a couple of years ago, um, but I met Warren through a colleague and uh, he, I was so fascinated by all the research he'd done. And he was, uh, you know, obsessed with organizational learning and uh, organizational excellence, and brilliant brain. And uh, I really, really wanted to get him to speak at our annual summit that you've spoken at a couple of times. And he just said, look, I'm 85, I don't travel anymore. I live in LA, there's just no way. I said, oh, no problem, Warren, I'll bring the conference to you. And we put the <laughs> summit literally down the road from Warren in 2009. Um, and the most incredible thing happened before that point, we'd, we'd been running them for two or three years. Before that point, we always had these scientists like presenting research for, you know, an hour or so, and then a few questions. And in the, like the start of this conference, the second or third session, basically Warren asked for the microphone, you know, for the audience, in the audience, he was in the audience. And he said, he stood up, he said, look, I'm really sorry. I really apologize, but we need to pause everything that you're saying now, because I'm still trying to catch up on what you just said for the last 15 minutes. And I want to stop and think about the implications of this. Um, And, he he just started peppering questions to the to the scientist. Um, It was Naomi Eisenberger at the time from UCLA. And he was like, what does this mean for leadership? And what does this mean? And, And after about 10 minutes, he was kind of satisfied. He understood what the science meant. And he went and sat down again. And of course, lo and behold, about 15 minutes later, when we'd presented another chunk of science, he said, hold on, I need the mic again. And he did it again. And, you know, what happened was, uh, we actually let people do that for the rest of that conference. And then we designed every single big event we've ever done with exactly that format ever since then. And uh, literally the way we do every one of our conferences and other people's conferences is present a chapter, give people some kind of opportunity to digest. But, you know, Warren felt very psychologically safe. He was the elder in the room, do whatever he wanted. Um, and, you know, what he wanted to do was stop everything with a conference of 300 people, change the whole plan. And he was absolutely Right. Um, And it was transformational for us. And we were really glad he did that because he passed away a couple of years later. And we, you know, we got so much out of that event. So you never know what feeling safe will do.
2: Yeah. And he modeled, he also, and by the way, I'm I'm so glad you put it that way. First of all, he was modeling being a learner, right? And, and, and as you kind of implied, it doesn't come with the territory of being an octogenarian, but, but he, he and Bucky had that in common. They were just learners till the end right and and that comes that requires you not being ashamed or afraid of not knowing um but and i suspect that warren was also doing a huge service for 90 percent of the room when he was asking the scientists to sort of wait a minute hold on explain that this way or help me understand everyone else was feeling that way too so he was modeling what it ought to look like yeah and I love that it was Naomi Eisenberger because she's done that beautiful work about how sort of um being excluded feels, you know, somewhat the same. Like the reason why we're afraid of speaking up is that it's very similar. Now I don't want to you'll tell us about the brain science, but it's sort of that same. Um, you know, these are these are very deep fears that we have of yeah. being excluded. It's painful. So yeah, well, maybe listening into that. that about
1: the yeah, brain let's science. into that. Actually, Naomi um, did really interesting research on kind of the opposite of the pain response. Initially, her early research was on the reward response when you do feel heard, when you are, when you feel connected, when you feel like validated in some way. She did a lot of research on the, the social reward networks that lit up in those contexts. And it turned out to be the same as physical rewards. Um, and a lot of other scientists, including her partner, Matt Lieberman and many others, were looking at the, the threat response back then. This is like, you know, um, f- you know, 15 years ago or so. They were looking at the the threat response that lit up when you would experience a um, a social threat, and it's um it's really uh it's really um a fascinating area. And, and you know, as I learned more and more about your work, I saw so many parallels with what we've been studying. And you know, the, those of you who've been following us for a while, you will have heard us explain this. But for the newbie, you know, the 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 brain has this this threats detection system that comes in kind of three broad categories. And it's really five, but we simplified it to three, but it's still accurate. And you can actually, you know, remember it and use it every day this way. Um, so it is accurate that it's three, but essentially the, the first level of threat response is like a little bit of alertness, but you're not alarmed. Um, and you actually do most kinds of work better. If like, if you need to focus on a project, you will be better in a level one threat. It's It's kind of like detecting something could go wrong, but you're in control. It's fine. Um, And so you're like more alert, you know, when you're giving a good talk, level one threat is great. You're focused, you're alert, you're not thinking about Facebook or something else, right? You're right there. So it increases focus, decreases creativity a little bit, but it's really good for performance in short bursts. The problem is the next level of threat, which is level two. This is where you sense an imminent actual danger and your system starts to shut down. And in this level of threat, you misperceive information you misread social cues. You know, someone says, hey, how's that project going? And you say, why? Um, you know, you misread someone, you know, asking questions. Um, you're preparing for fight or flight in this kind of mid-level of threat. And then the third level of threat is the overwhelming amygdala hijack that we've all heard about, right? And, and, but everyone sort of thinks about the amygdala hijack. But the first level of threat is really healthy. It's eustress, EU stress. It's, it's kind of that positive stress um and what we want to do in our teams is have the situation where no one's ever in greater than a level 1 threat right people are in you know positive states or level 1 threat um and i love the way you explained this recently we were talking about it you said you know what you want is you don't want kind of social threats because social threats are really strong you know if you think someone's treating you unfairly it's a really strong threat response Um, or if someone's, you know, attacking you publicly in front of people, it's a really strong threat response. So you can have threats about the project, but you don't want social threats because they are, you know, so strong. Do you want to just, you know, pull that apart a little bit more us?
2: Yeah. And, you know, the distinction that I've long made is the red is okay. The kinds of threats that are okay in a team, let's say, are the kinds that are discussable, you know, because they're shared. They're not embarrassing. And so it's like, oh, this project deadline is really crazy short, or this client is really crazy demanding. Um, so there's a kind of thread. It may even be eking right there above level one, but it's shared. So we kind of have each other's back. We're commiserating. We're working hard. We're focused. We're listening, right? So it's it's um, it's sort of the, you know, it's, it's, it, it motivates and lowers the barriers between us rather than the opposite.
1: Right, no, that's really interesting. So if we think about the five things that create threat, right, that, that are very social, like status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness, right, the scarf model, mm. if we think about that, you know, you could have a lot of uncertainty about a project, but you've got high relatedness with your team. Mm. Right? You mm. feel safe with them. You feel like you've got shared goals. So that that positive relatedness balances out. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's like a seesaw. That positive relatedness um, balances out the threat of the uncertainty, um, right. That, that that shared goal is really powerful. And also, you know, your status isn't at risk, so you're not feeling a status threat. But the very concept of embarrassment is definitely a level two, if not a very uh, strong level three threat. Um, it's it's, you know, embarrassment is really, really strong. And what happens in level two is you you just you're just processing really badly. Um, you, you're not going to speak up at a, in a level two threat state, very unlikely. And a level three, definitely not. Your Your brain's just on fire in a sense so you you want to you know the way we think about it is you want the least possible bias with the least possible threat right so you want to be able to call each other out um, to maximize learning and one way to think about that is you're 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 trying to like reduce accidental mistakes which are often biases there's just kind of doing the same thing we always have right which is an expedience bias you want to kind of address the biases, address the the mistakes, address the learning, but do it in the the least painful way possible. And lately I've been thinking about, you know, scarf as a a seesaw that when you've got a threat on one side, it's pretty heavy. Threats are heavier than rewards. So if you've got a, you know, a status threat on one side, you have to have like relatedness and fairness and autonomy on, on the right to balance it out. You know, you can't say to someone, hey, that, that you know that project was a complete flop um but by the way you look great today right a status <laughs> you know a status threat doesn't get balanced by a status reward they're heavier so that's the way you know kind of we think about it is you're trying to balance out these potential threats with these you know with these uh rewards but let's let's change gears a little bit um it's it's a really interesting thing i know that um you know you and i have been kind of connecting informally for a couple of years you you've been really you know gracious to speak at our summit kind of introduce these ideas and i know that um uh, you know i've been kind of i've been kind of knocking on your door for years saying can we do some more do some more and we finally agreed to you know collaborate more deeply i want to tell the story a little bit about um kind of how that's gone so far i'd love to hear from you but um what what really um what really kind of just absolutely got me convinced we should collaborate was we actually looked at the framework that you developed, um, which you published in in Fearless the uh, Fearless organization. We looked at that framework we put our expert team of PhD scientists, uh, we've got a pretty big team internally now of, of researchers. and we actually tried to improve it and we we <laughs> took it apart and we looked at the cognitive <laughs> foundations of all of the stages, right? And we said, you know can we do better? And we actually spent some time on that, um, some quality time. It wasn't like a quick look. We spent like two or three, you know, hour-long meetings with big research done in between. And uh, we actually found that you'd nailed it and um, that our best and brightest brains couldn't actually do any better. Um, And so, you know, we love the framework. We tweaked a couple of words here and there just so they worked, but, you know, set the stage, invite participation, respond thoughtfully became the kind of organizing mantra for, Uh, the collaboration that we're doing and what we've done is built underneath that we've we've worked out what are the critical habits underneath say set the stage that that are the most important things you need to do cognitively to achieve that and invite participation what are the habits but you know what's the collaboration been like from your perspective I I, I'm a huge fan after seeing that you can't do better than us I'm like
2: please come help us that's um just so gracious and reassuring deeply reassuring because i think what what i did in developing that leaders toolkit which as you said is in in the fearless organization was just it's it's like a an inductive process of of um sorting all of the qualitative data from many many case studies of you know thoughtful leaders and some not so thoughtful in in different industries and just looking for um you know behaviors that they were doing and then clustering them to sort of label them like here's here's what i see again and again the stage setting what does it look like it's sort of like a preemptive labeling of say the nature of the challenge like this like this wow this is a really challenging deadline we're gonna need to you know roll up our sleeves work together etc or um, this is, um, this is the kind of project that no one's ever done before, which automatically indicates no ideas off the table. Like we are right. in, we are pioneers, we're in new territory. So it, it, so, so this was this, um, you know, this lovely experience of kind of the qualitative data, then meeting the brain science and saying, yep, that qualitative data over a couple of decades of collecting it was, um, was in fact and some of it a little bit of it was quantitative from a survey perspective, but it was in fact pointing you in the right direction. Like right. The, the the intuition and the analysis about what is it that people do that help create this kind of shared state of the, that that allows learning. Um, and then you guys sort of took the microscope to it and said.
0: Huh, yeah, that's
2: that's consistent with brain science. Yep, that makes sense. And yep, there are habits that we know about that could make that happen. And it might be worth adding uh, because I'm, I'm not sure we've made this explicit enough. But a psychologically safe environment in a team is not there by default, right? I think I think mm. a lot of Harm has been done by people thinking, oh, this isn't very safe. And I better not mention it because, you know, that's we're supposed to, that should be like normal is psychologically safe. And then, you know, if something bad happens, we're no, I would say normal is human beings are risk averse and want others to like them and accept right. them. So we impression manage, you know, both consciously and unconsciously. So assume that the default is. You're not really at an optimal level of psychological safety and then pause to say, OK, what you know, what do we need to do to alter the default?
1: That's fascinating. A couple of things I want to address there. Firstly, the, you know, the the thing that we actually did when we looked at your framework is we ignored your framework. And we said <laughs> if we were going to look at three critical things to create this environment and we were starting with the brain science, um, what would they be? And um, and then so, so rather than sort of trying to validate your framework, that's we, helpful. That's how yeah, we actually looked at it and we said let's throw it out and start from scratch based on the cognitive science. And what we found was that um, a version of set the stage was critical and then we looked at the components for that. you know, there had to be a strong sense of in-group, uh, for example, as one component. and then you needed to label ahead of time the, the potential um, kind of challenges that were going to happen. Um, and kind of prepare people for those. So, so, so we actually, um, you know, we, we were we were really excited to see that we'd come to the same point when you just started with the science. So, so, you know, kudos to you for decoding the brain um, in uh, in that way. But the um, uh, it's really interesting that you say that about. It's not the default. Um, it's not the default. You know, people in a social setting uh, protect their status tremendously, right? We don't. Uh, we, we we just started we just started delivering this program about empathy, and uh, we asked twenty something people. You know, when someone offers to help you, do you take that help? And everyone said no. <laughs> wow. um, it's like no, you, you know, and and you need help, and someone offers right. you help. You know, what do you do? And you know, like in that simple a context, you know, people just don't want to impose. They don't want to look bad. Um, you know, we really really protect our our sense of status with others. And so it's it's not the default to speak up and to challenge at all. Take risks. It's to take risks, to take social risks. You know, it's just right. not the default to take social risks. It's really painful. I mean, it literally feels like it's going to kill you. You know, there's that joke from Seinfeld about, you know, the, but the, you know people choosing death or public speaking, a number of people choose death over public <laughs> speaking because public speaking feels more scary. Um, I mean, it's that kind of overwhelming as a threat response to feel like your status is attacked. And, you know, we've done a lot of research on this and Cameron Anderson uh, an amazing researcher who studied this, you know, across his life. But, you know, a status threat um, where you feel like you're gonna be kind of, your your importance in a group is gonna go down, um, activates really the same, almost exactly the same network as physical pain, but it's worse because you can predict that this will be painful for a long time. And it is like, like, you know, really messing up in a community continues to be painful. Whereas breaking a leg doesn't continue to be painful a year later or two years later. Um, There's also all this research showing that the highest status person in a community lives longest, controlling for income and education. Um, They're the healthiest. It's, you know, high status is a gift that keeps on giving. It's one of the few. uh, And low status is a pain that keeps on giving. So people are really sensitive about, you know, how they appear to others Um, and also not wanting to attack, you know, someone else's status. So it's really not, it's really not kind of, even with a group of really smart, really caring, really thoughtful people, unless there are processes and systems, you know, deliberately, explicitly creating psychological safety, it's probably not there. Uh, We just did some research on this. uh, We collected some data. Um, It was fascinating. We found that 57% of individual contributors experienced low psychological safety. They didn't feel Like they could speak up more than half at least 60% Wow, Um, 20% of managers which is much lower than only 10% of executives felt low psychological safety so the people at the top might say hey I feel like I can speak up you know um I feel fine but remember they've got high status already a bit like Warren Bennis right they could do anything and everyone will just say okay um so so they're, they're experiencing much lower baseline threat with more resources, more sense of control in the world, right, more certainty, more autonomy, more status, um, and so they'll misread the lower people's sense of safety, uh, but the lower you go down in in an organization, um, the more that uh, you you experience these these difficulties, which is fascinating. Can you you know can you explain yes. that from your perspective?
2: You know yeah absolutely. And there's a um, maybe this is I I recently got data um, and others have have had similar data. Maybe not using the same exact measure, but I recently got data from people senior leaders in a company and asked them uh, to for one day. I gave them the psychological safety measure and asked them to. Um, take it from the perspective of their membership on this senior team right and then the next day i asked them to take it from the perspective of the team that they lead right their their direct reports and i mean you can guess what the, and it's totally consistent with what you just said the the um the there's a significant gap they feel less safe right in the in the team with sort of folks at their level and above than they do with the folks at, that are um at their at the, at below their level, reporting to them, they feel more safe there. In other words, you know, they are absolutely confident that they can take those risks, that they can, you know, lead the conversation in a different direction, like Warren Bennis did, right. and and so that's natural um, and normal. And in a way, the goal is to how do we figure out to sort of get us all at the same level, because we need to learn together. Right? So that's you know that's one of the um, that's one of the sort of recent findings that I think is quite consistent um, with what you're saying, but mm-hmm. in general, like if I say, you know, what do we, what do we know from the empirical work that yeah, I've done awesome. and that others have done? Um, um, uh, Thing number one to say is that it's mostly been at the team level. Again, I mentioned this earlier, but the there's a very robust uh, consistency with finding that that um, if if people work closely together, they'll have similar perceptions of this interpersonal climate, um, and that those perceptions may very likely will vary across groups in within their organization. Um, it's um there's a kind of robust connection with performance again mostly at the team level. Some some people have studied it, I haven't personally, but at the predicting organizational performance um in, in various measured in various ways, um, generally for small to mid-sized companies, because once they get huge, it's just it's they're just too big to sort of think right. of, about it this way. Um, and then I'd say the big takeaways um in addition to Psychological safety's predictive value for team performance is it predicts learning behaviors like you know, asking for help, asking questions, um, is it running experiments, admitting mistakes, and so on. Um, it's also more recent, not surprisingly. A lot of the recent research that's been done, um, some by me, but mostly by others, is is showing a, a strong relationship between psychological safety and better work experience. You know, lower burnout, um, just at sort of more feeling um, connected and happy, engaged right.
1: with the work. I mean, um, that's a great and- segue. What what do you, I mean, how relevant do you think it is now when, when in in the sort of hybrid work environment? You know, somewhat uh, into in, into pandemic is some people would say intra-pandemic yeah. states that we're in right now yeah, I think How it's relevant? I
2: think I think it's very relevant um and and it's you know when we were talking about psychological safety not being the default um but being something you have to kind of co-create and and particularly you know if, if you're a team leader or a people manager you may have a slightly larger responsibility for for that co-creation process but it's um it's I think particularly not the default with remote and hybrid work, right? It's it, do not assume that someone who's a block away or half a world away is going to naturally find it easy to speak up honestly, candidly with what's on their mind. I think it would be a poor assumption.
1: Yeah, no, that's really uh, interesting. Um, and you know, my perspective on the, this, this kind of hybrid world is if people are on platforms and we can hear and see each other well, and we manage them thoughtfully there's no reason we can't feel very very connected um, yeah we just if, have to be ex- they...
2: more um what's the word i don't think this is quite the right word but more heavy handed you know more more um more deliberate more deliberate Intentionally. in inviting voices in and using the tools and the discipline of uh,
1: of creating and reinforcing those connections right right i mean we we, we learn about how to interact in the world through watching people's faces um, through like, that's how we learn unconsciously, like the right actions. And we look at people's, you know, displeasure and their pleasure, you know, unconsciously as we talk, as we do everything. Mm-hmm, so if you're mm-hmm. going to see each other really well, um, we, we can be really connected. And I, I think this time has an opportunity for creating a lot of safety and certainly the opportunity to use the chat so that everyone can speak up you know, in parallel is really amazing. You just you actually can't do in person what you can do virtually in, in many, many ways. There's some really, really interesting questions in the um in the QA that I had noticed. Um just um, let's let's talk about some of the connections between psych safety and some other areas. Like uh Burke was asking about the connection between this and covering maybe um psych safety and growth mindset. Like you know talk to us about some of the connections with uh, kind of other domains, like uh, similarities and differences. Um, do you know Kenji's work on covering
2: oh sorry 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 yeah I was looking I was looking at the chat but the Q&A is separate um yes um I mean I think and and Kenji and I have talked about this I think covering is a beautiful first of all it's a beautiful term and, and very very evocative of the experience um and it's it's closely related to a feeling of low psychological safety, because essentially what you're saying is it doesn't feel safe to bring my full self forward or my my authentic self forward. I'm going to cover. Um, I mean, it's right. a it's um, it's kind of the opposite of just being able to kind of lean right in with with what I'm thinking.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And and what about the connection to growth mindset? I, I see a lot of oh, parallels and sort of so, support. So How strong. It? Yeah, I mean, I,
2: I think of sometimes I say I, th- I think of a growth mindset and psychological safety as um, well, they're they're complementary elements, right? So growth mindset. Um, is something that individuals have or or can develop and that is and that it's present when there's a real strong belief that through trying and through getting it wrong and you know through exercising that muscle that muscle gets stronger and um, psychological safety describes an environment in which that's just a little bit more conducive to do. So they reinforce each other. If I have a growth mindset, I'll take more risks. It makes sense to me to take risks. If I take those risks and nobody kicks me out of the team or, or, or humiliates me in some way, I'll take more of them. It will further reinforce my growth mindset. My growth mindset will further reinforce our mutual ability to take risks.
1: Right, right. What about, it's an interesting question, like, what about when there's real safety risks, like in the military or fire department or things like this? Like, is it possible to have psychological safety when there's physical safety at, at, at bay? I think it's essential. I mean, I,
2: I I think, and in fact, as I, if we go back to some of my, the, the work in the, in the healthcare setting, and frankly, in my consulting days, got very interested in, in worker safety and manufacturing settings, um, one of the big issues in worker safety as you as you know, and patient safety is just getting people uh, two big things. One to speak up quickly and forcefully if they see someone else doing something unsafe, you know, do, doing a risky procedure without their safety goggles or whatever. Right. And in macho cultures, that's not easy to do and sometimes you have those like on an oil rig and so forth. But when we you know develop the psychological safety to really speak up, quickly, easily, forcefully, um, we are better able to catch and correct these deviations that could lead to, right. you know, serious
1: problems. Interesting. Uh, interesting. So it's a, it's a big, big deal, big connection. Yeah. I mean, I think about a lot of the early research on learning came from, you know, the army and, and, and um, oh, military yeah. of like, you know, there's so much at stake that you have to learn, right. The after action review right. came from there. Right. It's like, when the stakes are really high, you really, really want to learn. And so they they developed a lot of good learning, you know strategies there. So it needs that interpersonal right. safety.
2: And actually bringing up the military is really important because it's um it allows us to make the distinction between speaking up and sharing your concern and being in charge. right? It's it's if I'm, you know there's a chain of command and whoever is at the top of that chain of command, uh, desperately wants not to be making the decisions based on flawed data, right? based on um, an invalid uh, understanding of what's really going on,
1: yeah, yeah. the the research is uh, the research was mentioning is Kenji Yoshino. um he's done really the world's leading research on the concept of covering uh, fascinating. Um, researcher. He's going to be on, on your brain at work live early next year. He has a new book about how to have conversations. My team can put a, a link to an interview we did with him a while back uh, in the chat, but fascinating. And, and speaking of covering, you know, what's the connection or relevance to this to, to you know, marginalized populations, people of color and others, you know, how do you think this uh, this plays out in, in that realm?
2: Well, I think we have to start with um, the recognition and data data supported but we still need more data we don't have enough um that that and maybe by definition but marginalized populations on average the starting point is going to be lower psychological safety right and and for for a variety of reasons kind of historical um patterns not not um often being an only often and and being in a position where then the risk seems so terribly high because let's say i make a mistake or i screw up it's not just me screwing up it's um oh women can't do this job anyway right, the, right. The, just to give an example right so it's um um it is very likely the case that across the board there there are differences um across demographic groups in in the sort of mean level of psychological safety which is not saying
1: it's it's it has to be deterministic no we we can do better i mean it's people are certain you know certain groups of people are are kind of you know waking up to a higher baseline threat level in terms of you know feeling treated unfairly or feeling at physical danger um for sure um but also psychological danger there's some amazing work um Uh, by uh, Richard Wilkinson and another woman, I can't remember her name, which is very embarrassing, but um, called The Spirit Level. They looked at a sense of uh, or actual equality uh, in different states and different countries, and uh, they correlated this and showed that people were literally more healthy the more equality there was, and the more unfair people felt, um, uh, or the more unfairness, the more inequality there was in a state or in a country. Uh, the worst the health outcomes at every point in life. And the way I think about that is you're experiencing a constant, you know, sense of threat um, in terms of unfairness or low status or low control. Um, It's putting you in a higher baseline threat level, you know, every day, which is reducing immune system, right, and reducing your ability to heal, uh, shortening life, all of this. And I think that particularly for, you know, marginalized audiences, um, you, you know, if you're already in a level one threat, then something that might be just neutral becomes a level two threat. The threat responses are, you know, are really really um, additive, which is, you know, something to to keep in mind. Um, it's uh, it, it's you know it's a, it's a really interesting thing. What does it take? Let's let's you know kind of change directions a little bit from your perspective. Let's let's take a company of say ten thousand people, right? With ten thousand employees. Maybe they're spread around the world. Um, maybe there's a thousand managers and a hundred, you know, leaders and a C-suite of 10, just to kind of imagine. How do you bring psychological safety from your perspective into a company like that? Like, how do we change that company?
2: David, I think this is your domain, right? This is really what you guys do so very well, right? I've been, you know, I've been a a researcher. I've worked with, um, you know, handful of teams, increasingly senior teams, i um, I sort of study it. I write about it. I have rarely um, had the chance to really answer that question in a, you know, in a full on way. Um, I have sometimes sort of worked with the top team and then hand it off to right. to people to kind of um spread but my my I have a a theory of how this works. and I think it, my theory of how this works is very consistent with what you guys uh, have been doing. but my theory of how it works is, um, some kind of, you know, breakthrough, emotionally engaging experience. It yep. happens with, with people. Um, they get some ahas, they get new insights, they get some motivation to try this. And then here's the the key is the follow through, right? The follow through of having the chance to practice, to develop these habits, right. to practice. And this is really important in the context of doing real work, right? right. Not just sort right. of, I have a weekly or a biweekly Um, training session that I go off to. No, like that. I have an opportunity to kind of practice and get it wrong and get it right with my team talking about our real stuff. And I have studied things like that, but rarely been the person sort of um, responsible for making it happen.
1: Yeah. And I'm excited to collaborate with you on this, you know, on this challenge. I was curious to see kind of what your, what your theory was in this. We haven't had this conversation before um, and we have very, very parallel theories. Um, our theory on, on organizational change is that companies massively under index on, on building the habits um, that people need. They make something a priority. They think a little bit about the systems, but they don't the have it work to build the habits. And um, we, we think about priorities, habits, and systems. And the, um, the habits for us, the, the, the critical components for habits to form is people need a strong insight. They need an aha moment. Um, but they need to do that in some kind of social context, such that it really makes sure it happens. Um, Love it. And they need to do that one, at a, like like over time, focused on kind of one element at a time. So let's say setting the stage is the first kind of group of habits. You don't want to teach people, set the stage, invite participation, respond thoughtfully all at once. You want to teach people set the stage. And you want them to go off and practice that. And even better, you want the leader to go up and teach their team about it that week and like all get behind it and all think about setting the stage, right? With the, the other habits under that. Practice it and know that they're going to come back and learn something new and be kind of called on to share. So kind of modeling and coaching. So for us, it's like, how do you create these strong insights about say, set the stage? Um, how do you get people to really take action You know that week? Um, and then how do you get people to, to do that, you know, over time. So we build these kind of these 30-day experiences that can scale. And, and some, someone brought up the, the work we did with Boeing, which is absolutely about uh, creating psychological safety in a speak-up culture. We didn't label it that. Uh, the project's called Seek, Speak, and Listen. Uh, but oh. that one, you know, oh. we were able to get uh, these these habits embedded in the company um, at, at an incredible level. We, we We actually measured how frequently people did things like speaking up, and challenging each other and, you know, asking for other input. We measured it about a month after the initiative. And the initiative, by the way, touched 96% of about 140,000 people. Um, and uh, we measured it about a month later. And then we actually went back and measured it a year later. It happened Mar- uh, May last year. And we found the habits went up. So wow. more people were actually asking for input, challenging each other. Um, so we'd, we'd really embedded Uh, significant change. And you're going to see a case study published on that, uh, hopefully in about a month. Um, It's, it's it's the first time a company really, really took the science seriously at the way we take it. Um, You know, we we think about the right habits, but also how to embed them and how to scale them following the science. But in almost every one of those domains, the answers from the science are non-intuitive. Like if you, if you follow the science about the right habits, you, you end up with no more than three, but everyone wants 10 or 20, you know, um, if yeah. you follow, you think about embedding and you follow the science, you, you end up with a really different approach uh, and same with scaling. So that was super exciting, um, in, uh, in, you know, and I think my team can put that, uh, podcast in the chat. If folks want to kind of listen to them talking about it, we're not, we're not sort of super public about it yet till the case study comes out, but we did a, we did a interview with the, the senior sponsor at, uh, at Boeing there. So I, I think it's possible to change. A culture to be much more safe, but it certainly takes making it a real priority, like really focusing on it. Yeah. And it does take building habits across all 10,000, not the 10 or the hundred or the thousand. It, it, it takes building habits across the 10,000. Um, that's, you know, that's our perspective on it.
2: Yeah. And I would say that it's, um, it's not a sort of extra thing that you have to do. It's actually the thing you have to do to do the high, to do high quality work, on the real work, if if the work is is knowledge intensive, you know, problem solving requires judgment, requires collaboration. So it's it's worth. Yes, it's an investment, but it's a worthy investment
1: because it's kind of necessary, right? Right. I, I want to close with some kind of inspiring thoughts, but just before I do, just to get this out of the way, um, you know, we we have partnered to build a really exciting solution. Um, with Amy that can scale to 10,000 to a million to millions of people and we're really excited by it. If you're interested in talking to someone about that, just put the word team in the chat. If you want to talk to one of our people, you'll probably, someone will follow up in the next, uh, either today or Monday, Tuesday, just put the word team. One of our folks will follow up and find the right way to get you further information on that. Um, What we've done is we've taken, set the stage, invite participation, respond thoughtfully, built it into the critical habits under that that just make it more tactical and tangible and then built this into a 30-day experience that you can literally scale to the entire company um all at once so um great to see the interest in that amy um you know to close with some inspiring thoughts and we let people get back to their their day um you know what's what's most inspiring you at the moment about psych safety or, or or tell us a story that's been kind of most meaningful for you about this work
2: Wow, well, I, you know, I have to say, David, this is pretty meaningful. Um, this is definitely high up on the list because for me that um you know making it practical, making it actionable is um, is is the exciting, inspiring, you know wonderful opportunity. and um I'm you know I'm I'm I'm, I'm eager to help normalize these kinds of candid learning oriented, conversations um right
1: at work it's it, and you know have you got an example of one that comes to mind to kind of bring it alive in a story um i can't think of one at the moment but i i didn't um
2: if if i was supposed to think of that in advance i didn't i, mi- no, I missed the memo um but you know i'm i'm um i'm just drawing a blank maybe it's cuz there's so many um you know there's so many sort of amazing uh, people that I've come across who are who are you know in the arena doing doing the work that matters, and um, I keep I I keep like Warren Bennett. I keep wanting to learn from them.
1: Mm, yeah, no, it's it's uh, learners learners are um, people you want to spend time with for sure. You know, thinking about you know growth mindset is such a critical foundation for organizations. We've been working with that for the last ten years, um, and. Helped hundreds and hundreds of firms kind of build that into their, their their set of priorities, but also the habits and the systems. And I think psychological safety is similar in that it's very foundational. That a bit like growth mindset should be in the kind of water that's that the companies drink. You know, it should be a part of everything they do. It's it's a priority, but there are habits every day, and then there are real systems. And I think um, ideally we want to get that you know that combination. So hopefully, in another ten years, we can look back and look at the uh, the impact we've had together. My biggest insight from this session, I think it's such an important one, is that teams, no matter how good they are, probably are not by default psychologically safe um, just because of the way humans are. So we need to be much more intentional about that. And to be honest, I think the virtual world where we're on platforms uh, actually can make that easier in some ways if we're deliberate. Um, In some ways it's easier to really create safety in, in this platform world um if we're super deliberate so i think we have a great opportunity together to create more safety in the world um uh, thank you so much for your time and energy we're, we're loving the collaboration uh, i know my whole team was just looking forward to every week we'd work together and um we we're really excited to well, build it so, david it's you. a lot of fun working with you but your team is awesome it's a team just it's definitely not just me it's definitely <laughs> a team there's like 230 of us full time now yeah
2: well and, i don't know, you know them all but the ones i know are awesome
0: your Brain at Work is produced by the NeuroLeadership Institute. You can help us make organizations more human by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you listen to your podcast. Our producers are the NLI Marketing and Brand Team, Original Music is by Revelle, and Logo Design is by Catchware.